If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Psalm 63. We'll, we are making our way through selected psalms this summer while Mike is on sabbatical. Uh, as Aaron's shared, my name is Nate. I'm one of the staff pastors here at Restoration Road Church. And as, uh, as, you're, as you turn to Psalm 63, consider, I would ask that you would consider a time when you experienced a deep longing. Maybe slightly deeper than the longing described in 2 Samuel 23, 15, that says this, David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Maybe a little deeper longing than just water from, a, from his hometown well, a specific well in his hometown that just so happened to be occupied by an enemy nation at that time. Maybe a little deeper than that. Not a superficial or trivial longing like some of my friends. Uh, I remember back in high school that, had, that drove all the way to Northern California because they had a deep longing for an In-N-Out burger. This was before In-N-Out was in Oregon. No, a little bit deeper of a longing than that. A longing that became an angst, something that you felt. You see, our lives are full at varying degrees and levels of longing. Scripture also is full of examples of longing. Other than 2 Samuel 23, David's longing for water. Another example that I think of, of of longing in Scripture would be the book of Song of Solomon. It expresses a deep longing for true human intimacy, the love between a husband and a wife. Now, there was a little irony this week as I prepared this sermon, a sermon about longing, as we'll see in Psalm 63, because my wife has been away most of this week. Uh, So... I've been able to experience this. My wife, Becky, along with our youngest daughter, uh, returns tomorrow from visiting her family uh, in Denver, her younger sister in Denver, and I'm more than ready for her to be home. There was a sense of longing that began as soon as I dropped her off at SeaTac Airport and has grown each day passing. My world, it just isn't right without her. I use this example to demonstrate that longing is a normal part of the human experience. We long for people that are far from us. We long for things that we've experienced in the past. Longing can also manifest itself in a physical reaction. You can long for someone close to you so strongly that it aches. You've heard the term heartache or, oh man, that kid, he's just lovesick. You've heard that term before? And it's, it's this aching that comes, this physical reaction to the longing that's in our hearts. God has designed us to respond to our surroundings. Yet distorted by sin, our natural responses are not always accurate. We can long for harmful things that lead to addictions. We, our longing can be unwarranted or exaggerated, or it can cause us to, to make irrational decisions or, or irrational responses. Psalm 63, as we'll see this morning, is part of a succession of psalms directing our focus from natural response to supernatural trust. It focuses on the connection between response and the longing or the desire that's fueling that response. David's conclusion in Psalm 63 is that the deepest longing of the human heart is fulfilled in God alone. Only God can satisfy our true desire. 
Psalm 63 is broken up into two stanzas. The first stanza, verses one through eight, David is speaking directly to God, declaring that his greatest need is for the Lord, reminding his own heart of God's faithfulness and covenant love toward him. The second stanza, verses nine through 11, David turns his attention from a vertical conversation to a horizontal declaration. He's declaring that, that those, uh, the, the unrighteous who rebel against the Lord, those who seek satisfaction, not from God, but from the things of this world. And he declares the consequences for those that live that way. In Psalm 63, David expresses his trust in God when facing physical, emotional, and psychological distress. The world is not right for David. But yet he reminds himself, even though everything this world is handing to him is distressing, that's not what most concerns David in this psalm, nor is is it what he intends his audience, which is the Israelites, to dwell upon and to sing about, and for us, generations removed, to read about. David longs to direct our attention to where our deepest longing is met, and it's not from this world. The deepest longing of the human heart that we see in Psalm 63 is fulfilled in God alone, not in the things of this world, for only God can satisfy our true desire. If you've made it to Psalm 63, let us read this wonderful psalm together, and we'll come back and and spend some time. And this is a psalm of David, as the title says, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 63, uh, as we saw in the superscription or the title, uh, which is, these titles are included in 116 of the 150 Psalms. Over two-thirds of them include these titles for us to give some background, although this one isn't incredibly helpful, uh, because really there's two circumstances described in David's life where this Psalm could have come out of. The first circumstances would have been in David's middle years, while regularly serving King Saul and eating from his table, when David had to abruptly flee everything because Saul, jealous of David, sought to murder him. That's found in 1 Samuel chapters 19 
and the rest of 1 Samuel, we see David spending 13 years living in caves, living in foreign nations because of Saul's jealousy. So that could have been the first scenario during those 13 years of fleeing and hiding and living in caves in the wilderness where David could have written this psalm. The second scenario could have been in David's latter years when he fled the palace because of an insurrection or a coup led by his son, Absalom. We find that in 2 Samuel chapter 15. The desert setting is reflected in the writing. David is in the desert, in the wilderness, and we see that in verses 1, where he talks about a dry and weary land. This is a setting, and also in verse 10, when he talks about the jackals, the presence of jackals. And scholars land in different places, whether this was in his middle years with Saul or in his end years with Absalom. And so scholars landing in different places allow us to conclude, knowing the exact scenario for David, that David wrote this psalm is inconsequential to understanding its purpose. We don't have to know all the details to know what David is saying to us here today in Psalm 63 and why he wrote this song for Israel to sing again and again and again. And so let's take a deeper look into this psalm. David begins his opening line, God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. Now it's interesting. David uses the name for God, Elohim. This is a more generic or broadly name or word for the deity. It's not using God's personal name, the God of Israel, Jehovah or Yahweh. It's not using Adonai, the Lord, his lordship over him. He's using Elohim, which is a generic term, deities. And, and what we can conclude from that is David is saying of all the options that we have available to us, all the options before me, vying for my devotion, claiming that they can fulfill my longing, demanding my worship, all these little G gods that are in this world, of all of them, there is one option that is true. Notice that he says, God, you are my God. There's a personal connection that David makes. And again, we need to get into our thinking that David is not writing this psalm for me individually. He's writing this for Israel collectively to sing again and again and again. And we can look at this psalm and we can see this, is some, this psalm teaches us something about the followers of God, about God's people and how we are to view this life how we are to view our God. David's nuanced response implies that no other God can truly satisfy your longing. So David says, God, you are my, my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Now this, this, earnest, this word earnestly has brought up a, a number of chatter throughout the years from commentators. One commentator took this word and directly applied it to waking up early for a devotional time with the Lord and had a couple of pages writing on how we need to do that. Don't get me wrong, getting up early to offer God the first moments of our day is a good thing if it flows from a regenerated desire to be with God. There's nothing wrong with, with setting aside time to be in devotion to the Lord, but it flows from our desire 
to be with God. And the reason that they, they connect that earnestly is actually in contrast when David uses in the middle watches of the night. And so there's, there's connotations with the Hebrew word of, of rising early with the dawn to be aggressive in doing what you need to do. And you could see where he makes this jump. But I, I, I don't think David's saying, put on your duty cap, let's get this thing done and do this right. no. David is saying, this is the longing of my heart, is just to be in the presence of God. We would make a mistake to take this word earnestly and attach that to our works. We need to be more diligent. We need to do more. In fact, Dane Ortland, author and pastor, writes on this topic this about Christianity in broadly and, and applying our works, being earnest in just doing things. He says this, he says, the heart of Christianity is not a set of doctrines to believe, even though sound doctrine is vital. Nor is the heart of Christianity an activity to pursue, even though the Christian faith is necessarily active. Nor is it essentially a set of disciplines even though without reading the Bible and praying, we won't get far in the Christian life. The heart of Christianity is to live upon God. And Ortland uses John Bunyan's words here, to live upon God. Ortland continues, you were made for God, to know, enjoy, revere, draw strength from trust and love him. Christianity is about seeing and savoring Christ. Psalm 63 reveals desire influencing action, not the other way around. Desire must be addressed first for true works of righteousness flow from a changed desire. Earnestly I seek you is less about earning favor than it is about exposing longing. And so David says, God, you my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. There's this whole self that David says, all of me, the in, his internal desires and his external desires must be realigned or straightened toward God. I love the picture that C.S. Lewis uses in his space trilogy on humans being bent he uses this idea of we were once created in a certain way and now we are bent from that way. And it implies that, that we once had relationship in perfect alignment with God. We see that in Genesis chapters one, verses 26 and 27, where the writer of Genesis, Moses says, we were created in his image, in his likeness to resemble and represent him. But as we continue not very far through the book of Genesis and reach Genesis chapter three, we see that we all have been bent out of alignment. And it's not that we need to, with our works, rebend back into some straight way. That's not possible. What we need is to be made anew. We need new desires. We need, as Ezekiel would say, a new heart. David reveals the deepest desire for his inner self. The Bible uses words like soul, spirit, mind, intellect, will, this inner self, and this outward self. The Bible uses language like flesh or body. 
And that this, this complete person, the desires, the deepest desires for all of you cannot be supplied by what this world offers. It cannot be met by the things of this world. They are found in God alone. And David looks around at his parched setting. He declares, more than my lips desire water in this wasteland, I desire God. David expresses his longing. But his longing for what? For God's blessing? His longing to be returned as as the rightful king to Jerusalem? Yes, but not in the way that we interpret blessing. Because for David, God's blessing was not stuff of this world. God's blessing was his presence. And you see that as we continue through this psalm. In verse 2, David says, So I have looked upon your sanctuary. There's this longing, like there's this past tense. I have been in your presence, God, and now I am away from your presence. See, David has known the satisfaction of this world, and he also knows that it doesn't satisfy his deepest need, his deepest longing. He sat at the, kings of tab- at the tables of kings and, and eaten the richest foods. But that's not where satisfaction is met. It's where found. For David, in Psalm 63, his greatest longing is met by being close to the Lord in the presence of God. And David's response to the blessing of God's presence is worship. We see that in verses two through four. So I've looked upon your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. He recognizes who God is. Posture, response, affection, attention is all given to God. From early in the morning to middle of the night, God alone satisfies David's greatest desire. Now we see David addresses three major anxieties that seek to capture David's attention and his affection. We see David in physical distress Verses 1, verses 5, and verses 9. Although the language is figurative and metaphorical, it doesn't take much to realize there's just not much food in the desert wasteland. And so for David to be thinking about the banquet table of the king or the water that was available to him, there's not much water available in the desert either. David was in physical distress It certainly wasn't what David had grown accustomed to in his home. And I'm fairly confident that sleeping on the ground or in a cave was not nearly as pleasant as sleeping at home in his bed. There was a physical distress, not to mention the looming threat on David's life. The stress that would have had a physical impact on him. But not only was David experiencing physical distress, he was also experiencing emotional distress. Verses two, verses six through eight. The language in verse two is past tense. David's longing for a time when he was near God's presence. That isn't the case now. 
He's now far from it, with no idea for how long he will be away. And that distresses David. Not only is there physical distress and emotional distress, there's mental or psychological distress as well. David isn't sleeping. He admits it here in this psalm. He's up at night and he's thinking, but instead of worrying or weeping, now Psalm 63 is found in the second book of Psalms. They're separated into the five different books. Book two begins with Psalm 42, where David laments and says, my tears have been my food day and night. That was the beginning of this book of Psalms, where he's saying, all I can do is weep, but that's not what we see David doing in Psalm 63. Here, he remembers the goodness and faithfulness of God. Though he cannot sleep, he dwells upon who he knows God is. The stress is physical, emotional, and mental. In this situation, he declares God alone can fulfill what he is truly longing for. And so David turns to the Lord, and he wants his audience the, us, and even us readers today to see that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, we have to look to the faithfulness and steadfast love of the covenant-making God. Desire him above everything this world has to offer, for only he satisfies our deepest longing. We see in verse 3, David says, because of your steadfast, because your steadfast love is better than life. This word that's translated as steadfast love, we see it throughout scripture. It's the Hebrew word chesed, and it is, it is covenantal in its nature. It's talking, it can be, it can be described as God's, the covenant making, covenant keeping God's faithful love toward his people. David is saying, knowing your love Toward your people, O oh God, is better than living in this world altogether. He's going to step beyond saying everything this world has to offer, everything this world that is vying for my attention, my affection, my worship, my time, my resources, everything this world is pleading from me to give to it, it all pales in comparison when I catch a glimpse of the Lord. David declares that in God is his protection. Verse seven, the shadow of your wings. We see that phrase a few times in Psalms and it's like a mother hen covering her young, shielding them from the elements and from attack. David's confidence is firmly in God's provision and strength. So David says he clings to God and looks to God to sustain him in his distress. Verses eight, my soul clings to you, sorry. Verses nine through 11, we see a shift in the language where David goes from talking directly to God, who God is, and the benefits David, the change David has uh, as a result of knowing God, a shift from this conversation to God to an outward proclamation to those who reject God. And in many ways, verses one through eight, David is representing the faith-full. 
Not, not the faithful as in they do the right things, but those who are full of faith. And he turns in this, this final four verses and talks about the faith-less. These are those who are not placing their trust in God. These are those who are looking to the world to satisfy their needs. And so David says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. David making this shift in the text from vertical conversation to a horizontal proclamation of those who reject God, God's way, God's people, and look to this world to satisfy their longing. And it's not so much about David personally as it is about who David represents. God's anointed king represents God's chosen people. And instead of being honored, he was despised and rejected. This this fits into both scenarios. Because while he was serving Saul, he was anointed king. You remember that, that season? David was anointed king as a young shepherd boy, the youngest in a long line of sons, the one that wasn't even brought into the party. Had to get him from the field. Guess what? He was anointed king and sent back to the field to wait. But during this time, while Saul was king, David had been anointed king. He was waiting on God to fulfill his promises. So we see that David here is is pointing forward to another, more greater anointed king that would also be despised and rejected. But here, David, at the end of this psalm, he he focuses on the faithless and their desire, uh, who desire destruction of the faithful. But the truth is, David says, the end result for the faithless is their own destruction. David declares that his desire for and devotion to God outweigh everything else in this life and contrast this desire with those who ultimately live for themselves. The faithless seek violence. They speak falsely and ultimately reject God, his design, and his people. And in the end, God will give them over to their desires. They will be devoured by violence. Church, This ought to be a sobering reminder to us of the mission that God has given us to proclaim the good news of the gospel. It should be our greatest desire that no one follows forward into this to fulfilling their desire, that that salvation would come. That should be what we pray for, what we endeavor to engage in in proclaiming the gospel Ultimately, sometimes I think we don't because our, our desires, our longings are misguided. And so I think Psalm 63 is a pertinent reminder for us that though the world offers many things to take our attention and vie for our affections, there is but one who can fill your greatest needs. There is but one who meets your deepest longing. Psalm 63 exposes 
the incorrect desire to look to our own resources to satisfy our deepest longing. Examples that we see in Psalm 63, rich food, water in the desert, protection from enemies, sustaining life. These in this last category, they look to their own means rather than looking to God. The longing for God in, in the unregenerate man has been bent by sin, to use Lewis's words. It does not need realignment through human effort. It needs to be made anew. And this is a work that only God can do. But see, as we read through this, this psalm, and especially if you were here with us last week as, we went through, as, as Aaron went through Psalm 51, we see that David has a problem. He cannot fix his bentness. We have the same problem. We cannot realign our longing to where it ought be. Ever since Genesis chapter three, our longing is bent and we are predisposed to long for things, for lesser things, for little G gods. And sometimes that's ourselves. We elevate our opinions, our position. We look for accolades and praise from man. These are things that come natural to our sinful nature. We too are bent like David. But because of this problem of sin, God sent one in the line of David, the true king, one without sin, the king who would also know thirst and hunger in the desert, who would feel the sting of betrayal, the distress of being despised and rejected. And like David, his life would be sought by those in powerful positions. But the difference is, his desire, this righteous king's desire for obedience to God was also backed by the ability for perfect righteousness. See, David, like all of us, lacked the ability to be perfect in righteousness because we are bent. This king did not lack that ability. For though he was in the line of David, truly man, he was also truly and fully God. John chapter 1 says the word became flesh. Those are good words. The word of God tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was what David was looking to, longing for. And John chapter one in our context says, God came to man, set up the tabernacle here among us, reached us because we could not reach him. Jesus Christ is the true David. And through his obedience, those who trust in him are a new creation. Not brought back into alignment. No, made anew. This is good news, brothers and sisters. This is the good news that we get to declare to others that God did not only just fix the problem, he remedied, he is the solution. He brought us from death to life. The longing for God that was bent by sin in Genesis 3 has been brought from death to life, made anew through Christ's righteousness. Because Christ bore the punishment of sin upon himself at the cross, because he laid down his life, 
because death had no claim on him for he was sinless and because God raised him from the dead to life so that those who trust in him may rise from death to new life in Christ. Because Christ has done this work, we can reap the benefits of restored relationship, of renewed longing. Saving faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ is the only path to restored relationship with God, fully satisfying our deepest longing and aligning our desires for God. As the late pastor and author Tim Keller wrote in his book, The Reason for God, he writes this, quote, faith that changes the life and connects to God is best conveyed by the word trust. Imagine you are on a high cliff and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you as you fall is a branch sticking out, out of the edge of the cliff. It is your only hope and it is more than strong enough to support your weight. How can it save you? If your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you're lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you do reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Why? Here's his point. It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. He concludes, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. This is an analogy that that he uses to help us kind of get our thinking proper. The point that Keller makes here, it's not about the amount or the strength of your faith, which fulfills your deepest longing, but the object of your faith. John chapter 7 Verses 37 and 38 recount this. John writes, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, does anyone have longing? Here. Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, quoting Isaiah, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Man, to a culture that had to walk sometimes miles to a well to get water, (laughs) living water flowing from inside of you, that is great news. (laughs) Great news. I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to carry water, I remember uh, I I did a mission trip back uh, many years ago now down to Haiti after the uh, 2010 earthquake. And we were helping rebuild and we had to carry five gallon buckets, uh, fairly decent, a couple football fields from the spigot to the concrete where they were mixing the concrete. It is really difficult to carry water in an open bucket. You, you, you start with more than what you end with. <laughs> so for Jesus to say, if anyone is thirsty, well, we're in the Middle East. Yes, everyone is thirsty. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and I will give you living water. Water that changes not only your desire, but changes who you are. See, this is the longing, the fulfillment of the longing of Psalm 63, where David says, 
your steadfast love, to be considered part of your people, it is better than living. It is better than living. These are not just flippant words. These are words that come from a man deeply in love and devoted to God. The deepest longing of the human heart is fulfilled in God alone. Only he can satisfy our true desires. You see, the reality is the examples that I gave at the beginning of this sermon, the heartsick lovers, they can be reunited only to feel the angst of separation again in the future. The thirsty may be quenched with water only to thirst again in this life. The starving may be seated at a banquet, have their fill only to hunger again in the future. Things of this world can only satisfy temporarily. The loud declaration of Psalm 63, the cry of David's heart that he had his people sing again and again that we would read over and over is this, only God will fully satisfy your deepest longing. So what now? How do we respond to this psalm? Turn to Christ. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to turn to Christ? It means that Christ is all. He's everything to you. He's not just something that falls into a category that you call religious behavior. He's not just attending church on Sunday mornings and sometimes opening your Bible to read his words to you. No, he is everything. And so that begs the question, is Christ everything to me? Could we stand with the Apostle Paul? No, he didn't say this. The hymn writer and say, take the world, but give me Jesus. Can we say that? Do we mean that? Those who trust in Christ look to Jesus above everything this world offers. He is most precious. It doesn't take long to look through church history and see examples of those who are willing to give up everything because this world was not as beautiful, not as precious, not as glorious as Christ. Does that describe me? Does that describe you? Is Christ most beautiful to us? My prayer for us this morning is that we would understand our greatest longing cannot be fulfilled by anything in this world. And that we would look to Christ alone. Now, tomorrow, in our greatest moments of success and in our deepest need, that we would look to Christ alone to satisfy our deepest longing. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, we come to you. We confess, God, that, that it is so easy to follow the shiny and flashy things of this world. We also confess that we have a great need 
We need your strength to die to ourselves and to live for you. God, we ask that you would continually work in us. God, if there are any here today who have not turned to you, Jesus, in repentance and faith and placed their trust in you, God, I pray that you would bring conviction. Holy Spirit, would you do your work in our hearts? I pray, Lord, that if there are any here today who have not trusted in you, they would turn and trust in you, Jesus. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in my own heart. God, those of us who are living in that tension of the already but not yet. We long to be with you, just like David in this psalm, but yet we're stuck in this world, but yet it's a beautiful privilege that you've invited us to engage in the mission, your mission for the church. God, I pray that you would help us to see the world through your perspective. I pray that you would help us to see you as you truly are. God, that we would respond in worship, giving you our best and our first, giving you all of our attention and our adoration. And you would help us to turn from the things of this world. To engage in the mission that you have given us to glorify your name, Jesus. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.